When things aren't right, it's what's going on. Well, Jeremiah chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. And uh, that's the question he had on his mind. We can all agree, am I right, that we don't fully comprehend the ways of God. Right? Anybody here thinks they've got God figured out? You don't. If you think you can speak on behalf of God, you probably can't. And you should take heed that you may not have the right assessment of God's ways with people. Several of the most godly people in the Bible were very perplexed at times. And at a couple, they were at a complete loss regarding how to assess or interpret what was happening to them or around them. And Jeremiah is questioning God's justice regarding the future of the kingdom. And it's a question that's based on perplexity with God's ways. Keep in mind that these chapters in Jeremiah are not chronologically organized. When you read Jeremiah and you read the first 30 chapters, you're reading a collection. Okay, like reading a book of essays, if you will. I wish they were chronological, but that's why there's a lot of repetition. And in those 30 chapters of journals and sermons and prayers, he had Baruch, who was his associate or his uh, scribe, if you will, write them down and put them in a book. And the 12th of Jeremiah is a prayer of a man who's seeking to understand God's justice. And it's surfacing the big question that nearly everyone has. And that is, why does God allow evil? How many of you have asked that one? In fact, why is it that evil even seems to flourish unchecked? Or maybe another way is, why do bad things happen to good people? Jeremiah was only one of the biblical writers to ask. Habakkuk asked the same question. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah, by the way. And if you read his short prophetic book, you will see how the question is asked and answered. And then in Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph that I read for you at the beginning of the service today is a recollection by that songwriter. Psalms are songs, right? And he, he wrote a song, and, and it would be something like, uh, Oh, my foot almost slipped <laughs> when I watched the wicked prosper, you know. I mean, he was perplexed. He couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand why the righteous were having such a hard time and the wicked were getting off scot-free. And then, of course, there is the classic book of Job, the man of God who in the beginning was experiencing life <coughs> as it was assumed it was supposed to be. He was a godly and righteous man. He had everything going for him. He was wealthy. Uh, he had children. And uh, things were going just like they're supposed to. Uh, but then all of a sudden, there was a calamity and just in a matter of days, he was left with nothing, not even good health. He was 
a spectacle, and the world watching was wondering why these things were happening. They were speculating with false assumptions about God's dealings with the righteous and the wicked. And these old questions that have been asked and re-asked time and time again, it's the problem of evil and why it exists and why God allows it both to exist and also at times to seem to prevail. I want to quote two prophets, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Have you heard this before from Isaiah? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways higher than man's ways. And God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. Have you heard that one before? Do you believe it? How about the New Testament prophet Paul? He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined or understood. Now, hopefully we would find encouragement in our text today regarding asking questions of God when we're confused, when we're perplexed, when we're challenged by life and the things that we see and experience. But we should take some warning regard, regarding the, the spirit in which we do ask. Because we see in Jeremiah's prayer things that help us in asking honest questions, but with a spirit of humility and respect toward the one who is taking our cause. And so it says in the 12th of Jeremiah, beginning at verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Righteous are you, O Lord. But then he says, Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease. You have planted them, and they have also taken root, and they grow. They even produce fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, Lord. You see me, and you examine my heart's attitude toward you. So drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of carnage. How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away. Because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. You notice Jeremiah's opening remarks, Righteous are you, O Lord, that, you would plead, that I would plead my case with you. I've heard it said, and I even said it, and I wish I had no, that whenever a person is suffering, that it's okay to throw a tantrum at God. Just let it fly, take no thought with regard to anything except your feelings of pain. But I would suggest in personal retrospect that that's really not a good way. 
It's true that we can experience heart-wrenching losses and undergo personal attack that is beyond our capacity to endure. We can be maligned, betrayed, accused, ignored. We might suffer loss of fortune or family, health. We might be deeply embittered through those losses, even questioning God's goodness and wisdom, to question his love as well. We might even question his very existence as we go through these pains, as we pray and we get nothing but silence in return. It's like praying and the heavens are like brass, and it just comes back at you. These feelings are real. They're understandable. But feelings without understanding are not accurate reflections of the truth. You know, feelings are are signposts or indicators of things. But they're nothing more than that. They tell us something's wrong, something's up, or something has gone awry. But they cannot tell us the whole story. Job lost it all. You know, his wife, we don't talk much about her, but she suffered the same loss, including the stigma of being married to a man to whom God is now dealing this horrendous blow. She's now identified with a man that the rest of society has deemed to be so sinful that God poured out blows of anger, sparing nothing except his life. And so she said to him, remember, curse God and die. Just die already. And she blames him for her suffering. It's like she wants to live out her days without him being around and all the mess that comes with it. I I do not doubt that she had already cursed God herself. So were Job and his wife justified in their feelings of loss and humiliation and terror? Yeah, they were. They they had justification for their feelings. Did Job lash out in blasphemy? No. But did he question the justice of God, which is what a lot of us do? Did he question the justice of God? He certainly did. He even came to the point of saying, God, if you just come down here and tell me what I did wrong, I'll I'll fess up. But I haven't done anything wrong, and what's happening to me isn't right. But he was not aware of the cosmic warfare that was raging and the significant role of his life in that battle. Because there was a failure of comprehension, the trial was not the best, and God still triumphed, and Job came out the other side, albeit a more godly man. Because God never abandons his own. But he still questioned the justice of God. 
And Jeremiah begins with this question, righteous are you, O Lord? But then he says in verse 3, you know me, and you see me, and you examine my heart toward you. He had confidence that what God was doing was rooted in justice and mercy. He had confidence that his questions would be understood in the motive of his heart. I really want to know the truth. But I don't understand it right now. And the question, why are the wicked prospering? Or why aren't they being dealt with swiftly? Why do they get away with sin? It's as though he's asking why the wicked have been allowed to bring deception to many. Now, how would they do that? Well, think, if, if they were sinning and they were judged swiftly, would that not speak to those who are watching so that they would not follow in the same folly of unbelief? Have you ever thought, why doesn't God deal with those people? And then the world would realize that God is real and he'll, you know, he's righteous and he'll punish sin and he rewards the godly. Right? We have an amen back there somewhere, somewhere in the choir loft. You know that when Lucifer fell, he landed in the choir loft. You know that, don't you? In the modern equivalents, the worship team. Anyway. But isn't it true, you know, God, if you just deal with these people, why do you let them get away with this stuff? If you just do to them according to their deeds, the warning would serve to keep the rest of the people in check and we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. Anybody here thought that way? And here's the subtle issue behind these thoughts. It's as though it is God's fault that things have gotten so bad. And that is always the implied result. Whenever God's righteousness and justice are called into question, it's an accusation that God is ultimately responsible for evil. After all, who created Satan? God's fault. Why did he create a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Couldn't he have just left it well alone with the tree of life? It's God's fault. And just like our first parents, when they ate the fruit, and God said to Adam, did you eat the fruit? The woman that you gave me, huh? Patty said she's heard that line before. You're going to hear it again, too. <laughs> but who was, what was he blaming? If you hadn't put her here? And so when God looks at Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent. And where did the serpent come from? You see what you do when you begin to question the justice of God? You begin to enter into an accusation. And what is Satan's chief role? He is the accuser. So, let's take the cross of Jesus, for example. I mean, who killed Jesus? Why did the wicked Sanhedrin get away with a false trial 
and an unjust verdict, along with the cooperation of the pagan government to have Jesus put to death. Why, why did God kill his own son? Because these were agencies, but you see, he didn't step in, right? He let it happen. He let the Romans get this power. The Sanhedrin found their way to this place of authority in Israel. So what if God had intervened and suddenly struck all these wicked folk down with lightning? What would have happened? Well, that a good question? The world would have seen God's judgment against wickedness? Mm-hmm. They would have recognized that Jesus was the righteous one. But that would have brought the world to its knees and everybody exclaiming, Jesus is Lord. Would that have happened? Would they be saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The truth is, as Paul expressed it, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How is that? Because you understand that if Jesus had not died on the cross, what would have happened? We'd be dead in our sin. And so Paul goes on and he says, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. These texts tell us that the way God prevailed over evil is not by slamming it in the face with power, but by love and sacrifice. That's the wisdom this world doesn't understand. Jesus came because God so loved the world. God allowed his son to endure the evil of men and demons 
but by doing so, made Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then by raising Jesus from the dead, having him ascend to the heavens, to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, declares him to be both Lord and Christ, and has provided a way for all evil to be answered. Justice took place as all sin, including the wicked of Jeremiah's time, including those who nailed Jesus' hands to the cross, including those who condemned him to death, he took that sin upon himself on the cross. He died the once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So you see, when we ask questions, and I'm sure that the disciples, when Jesus was crucified, they were thinking, how, why? Where is God's justice? See, God will judge the world, but first he dealt with all sin that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. And we have to view everything through the cross. We have that benefit as we live in the new covenant. The Old Testament saints had to trust in promises yet future with limited understanding. But we have the joy of understanding God's ways and dealing with evil and sin and sorrow and loss and betrayal through the lens of Jesus. He suffered all those things. That he might bring us to God. God does not stop evil. He conquers evil through love and sacrifice. And so we read in Hebrews. Since we have a great cloud of witnesses. And who was who he talking about? Do you remember? In Hebrews 12, he's referring to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the great hall of faith. And he talks about Abraham and Moses and Noah and uh, Gideon and all these different ones. He says, so therefore we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, let's say it, author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think you got it bad? It may be bad, but do you have it that bad? Because it says in verse 4, read it with me. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those who are whom the Lord loves, he... And he scourges every son whom he receives. 
And it's for discipline that you endure. And God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, now let's stop there a minute. If you don't get discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Why do the wicked prosper? Because they're not sons. Do you get the connection? You need to understand something, that God's judgment is not that he comes down in fire and brimstone. That's the last resort. You know what his judgment is? And this should terrify you more than fire and brimstone. His judgment is when you get away with your sin. That should scare you. Because then you begin to start thinking, well, things don't apply to me like everybody else, or I'm entitled to something because I've been serving the Lord. If you get away with sin, that's scary. And that's his judgment. Because he disciplines those he loves. We had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. How much rather would we be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems to be really fun. Oh, I got the wrong version here. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the what? Peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It literally means to set the bone. And I hear an amen. Amen. (laughs) Set the bone. Make strong that which is feeble. There's no problem with asking God's questions uh, or pouring out your heart to him in painful sobs or joyful shouts. Either way, he's conquered sin. He's conquered our sin. He's destroyed death. He's destroyed our death so that we might possess eternal life in him. And there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question today is, do you believe? You may be thinking, well, you know what? I believe, but it sure hurts. But I believe. I believe. Have you trusted Jesus for your sins and surrendered your life to him, who is righteous and true? By faith in Jesus alone, you can overcome the doubts and the fears in life. Because only in Jesus is there an answer. And that is his love. And his sacrifice has conquered it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.
for the life that's in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that that you reign. And we just ask that today, Lord, whatever things might be perplexing your people as they came in today, struggling maybe with someone's loss or sickness, death perhaps, or disease, or failing health, whatever things might be questioning, uh, causing our hearts to be questioning, or perhaps just simply we're being persecuted because we believe. May we, through Christ Jesus, overcome in the faith that he endured everything for us. He suffered hostility of sinners against himself. And he himself bore our sorrows, carried our griefs, and by his stripes we are healed. To Jesus Christ be glory forever and ever. And may we rise up, Lord, in greater faith through him. Amen.